0: Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Okay, okay, I know that's not true for some of you. Uh, I've been talking with a couple of you this week, and I understand that many of us are mourning after that Ravens and uh, Steelers game last week. Um, I do have the expectation for our Steelers fans here, and I'm thinking of Jen Bird. We want to be kind and courteous to our Ravens fans. I know we have a few in the church. Now I could give expectations for the Eagles, like the Eagles fans in here, I could tell you, hey, let's just be cool and nice to our neighbor, but y'all don't really listen to instructions and I can't really say anything about the Patriots today because the guy running my mic is a Patriots fan so uh, no comment towards the Patriots but I understand it's a crazy week but uh, with all that going on we are so so grateful to have you guys here. Uh, My name is Christian and I'm on staff and today as Ben said we're in week two of our series called Road Trip, Journey to Jerusalem. For this series, we get to accompany Jesus and the disciples as they are making their way to Jerusalem, which we understand to be the culmination of Jesus' ministry. Everything that he's done focuses on this point in Jerusalem, and so we get to join them on that today, but I do have to ask the question, uh, by show of hands, how many of you, when given the option, you prefer driving a road trip over flying? Show of hands. Okay. Okay. We have a few, we have a few, all right, and then the other side of that, how many of you have given the option would prefer to fly, right? Okay, remember the hands that are up, okay, because um, those of you who raise your hands for the road trip, you should be proud, like you should be excited because per scripture, you are more Christ-like, right? Because in the three years of Jesus' ministry, he didn't fly at all. And so just want you to be encouraged for those of you who fly, just something to think about as you consider traveling. But I, I want to tell you guys about my most recent road trip. We drove because you know, what would Jesus do? He drive? So we drove to uh, Mississippi, and we were there for Christmas and New Year's, right? And uh, you know at the end of every trip you want to stay as long as you can with your family but then you're like I got to get back to work right and so we tried to time it so I could leave Mississippi and get back here in time for work to start working back here again and so we leave and we're driving through Tennessee we did about nine or ten hours and we stop in Virginia on route 81 and so we find a hotel to stay the night to get up the next day and do the rest of the road trip so we can get home just in time to pick up our work responsibilities right and so We stop in Virginia, and we're about to go to bed, and we realize, oh, you know, we don't have our noise machine. Uh, Let's just turn on the news. Let's turn on, like, the TV uh, for some white noise. And ironically, it happened to be the news, which some people think the news is equivalent to white noise. What's the difference, right? So no comment there. But uh, we turned it on, right, to listen to it as we fell asleep, and then we woke up. I woke up the next day, and I look at the TV, and I see at the bottom, of the tv says snow and so i i have a, a mild panic and i'm like getting out of bed praying like let there be no snow let there be no snow and i open up the blinds there's about five inches of snow on the ground and we're stuck in this hotel in virginia and so we start to panic and we start my wife doesn't panic she's just like i'm taking my time i start to panic i go outside the car is covered In snow, the ground, the parking lot is covered in snow, and so I start to do this kind of like dance by my car, where I'm using my arms because I don't have an ice scraper to clean off the car. And so I'm walking around the car, like throwing my arms all over it. I would, I thought the students would be impressed because it almost looked like a TikTok dance of some sort. But I'm cleaning off my car, and I finally get it cleaned. We load up the car and we hit the road, right? But it's one of those situations where the more we drive, the more more snow there is. And so we realized we cannot go any further. We stop at a Walmart. I get a nice scraper and a chocolate bar for my wife because I was in a terrible mood that morning. Uh, we get back in the car and we drive back to the hotel and wait a few hours. But we experienced this stress because we had a destination in mind, right? We had this itinerary in mind. We needed to get back on the road so we can make it back in time for what we had to do. So today, in this passage that we're going to be working through, Jesus has this moment with the disciples where he reminds them of the importance and the urgency of Jerusalem. He reminds them of what is on the itinerary, what is on the docket for when they get to Jerusalem, and so we get to eavesdrop in on that today. Now, you guys know we've been in the Book of Luke for quite a while, and we see this pattern kind of occurring in the Book of Luke, where Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Right? He's constantly teaching about the kingdom of heaven, and then he shows them what the kingdom of heaven looks like through how he loves people, how he loves the sinner, how he performs miracles. Right? How he doesn't abide to the cultural norms uh, with their obsessions with. Status and wealth, all of these things, right? He lives counterculturally. So he's teaching about the kingdom. He shows them about the kingdom. And then he invites them to live into the kingdom, right? But every now and then he has this moment where he pulls them aside and he says, I'm going to die. And then he just jumps back into it. He starts to teach again, does these things, and then he pulls them aside. I'm going to die. Like that's what's happening ahead of us, right? And so today we get to eavesdrop in on one of those conversations, right? Where he's sharing with them that he's going to be crucified, right? Now some suspect at this point in Jesus' ministry, y'all have been here the last couple weeks, Jesus is making a lot of the religious people mad, right? By this point they're a little frustrated, right? And they want to figure out how they can stop him and his ministry. So some scholars suggest Jesus is probably taking, being on the down low, the DL, right? He's not trying to, he's still performing miracles, still teaching, but he's not trying to be super obvious about it because he needs to make it to Jerusalem, right? And so he's maybe on the down low, but at this point in time, at this passage today, what happens is he joins thousands of other people who are journeying to Jerusalem for Passover, and he joins his caravans of people as they're working on the final leg of their trip. And then at one point, as they're journeying, he pulls the disciples aside, and he has this holy huddle of sorts to have a really important conversation with them so that's what's happening kind of the big picture right now in today's passage we're going to be in Luke 18 if you want to join us you can use a Bible Uh, if you don't have a Bible take a Bible home with you we'd love you to have that and you can join us online by using your Bibles as well so we're going to be in Luke 18 but before we jump into that I'm going to go ahead and pray for us let's pray Heavenly Father you're such a good God we're so grateful for your word it is a gift to us we pray That your spirit would uh, enable us to have clarity for what you want us to take away from this this morning. What you want us to gather from your word. God, we pray for great clarity. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts. We pray that we would continue to realize the depth of your love and care for us. God, thanks for for everyone here today. Thank you for what you're doing here at the Christian Life Center. We're so grateful to be a part. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 18, verse 31, this is how it starts. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, right? We've had this moment before, for those of you who are holy and do road trips like Jesus, we've had this moment before. Right when you're driving and you're waiting for your destination to break on the horizon, right? For my wife and I, it's Disney. We like to go to Disney World and we drive. And so, when we're driving to Disney World, we are waiting for that castle to break through the horizon, right? Or we're waiting for that big golf ball looking thing in Epcot to break through the horizon. And when we see it, we're like, oh my gosh, we're here. The road trip is coming to an end. And so here Jesus is almost kind of having this moment with the disciples. He says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Right, They would be in Jericho, or approaching Jericho, pretty almost in Jericho at this time. So they're maybe about 15 miles from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is up, they're traveling uphill to see it. So they may have seen Jerusalem from that far. Or they may have seen the last leg of their trip. And so they're having this moment like, we're here. They would have journeyed hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And they are closing in on the final destination. And then Jesus says everything that is written about the Son of Man and the prophets will be accomplished. Right? You're, you're, are you ever driving and as you're getting close to your destination, you and your family start to talk about what you're going to do when you get there, right? You start to talk about your itinerary. To like, oh, I'm going to ride this ride. I'm going to eat this food. For me, it's Animal Kingdom's Flight of Passage. I will wait three hours in line for this three-minute r- ride. It's a terrible use of my time, but I will wait so long. And so as we get close, I'm like, oh, Flight of Passage. I can smell it, right? I'm so excited for this moment. And so Jesus is saying everything, this is our, our itinerary, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Finished, complete, right? And so let's look into that because Jesus is referring to very specific things, right? He's saying, hey, here's our itinerary. Let's talk about it. So, what does Jesus mean by this? This idea that the things that the prophets wrote about will be accomplished, right? So, the Bible, as we know it, before we knew it as the Bible, People understood it as a, as a big scroll That housed a bunch of smaller scrolls, right? In fact, sometimes when people wrote scripture They didn't realize that God was using them to write scripture, right? Some of these individuals were writing biographies Some of them were writing historical documents to track things Some of them were writing story, poetry, and song And all of these scrolls, right? Some of them were writing research papers But God used every single stroke of the pen, and eventually it became canonized into what we have today as the Bible, right? And, and what we have to be careful of is we have to remember the scriptures, they're, they're hollowed, they're holy, they're inspired by God, they're significant and important, but they aren't the end. They aren't the thing. They are pointing us to the thing, right? They're pointing us to Jesus through scripture, through God's holy word. We learn more about the thing, which is Jesus and the story of this. And so we believe as Christians that every stroke of the pen, God is using that to point us to the big picture of His plan for the world, and that's to redeem and restore everything, right? And that happens in the person of. Jesus right and so Jesus is trying to say hey all of the Old Testament prophets that you guys are familiar with they're pointing to this moment in Jerusalem everything will be accomplished right here in Jerusalem and you got to imagine if you're a disciple then you might get excited right you might start to think of all the prophecies that were spoken before and you're like this is going to happen in Jerusalem because remember the disciples left their families for this right they left their jobs. They left their savings account for this moment. So when Jesus says, it's happening, it's going to be accomplished, they get excited, right? Like, just like when you're arriving at Disney World, you're a little stoked. So they're getting excited. And I can imagine maybe they're thinking about all the prophecies that were written before, right? Maybe they're thinking about some of those things that Jesus is referencing. So they might have thought about 2 Samuel 7. Which says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. They might have thought about Daniel 7, which says, One like the Son of Man is coming with the clouds. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Everyone worshiped him. His will be the kingdom, and that won't be destroyed. They could have thought about Zechariah 9, that said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, riding on a donkey. Or maybe Isaiah 22, which says, I will place on his shoulders the keys to the house of David. And so we can speculate, for good reason, that they might be excited. That they hear Jesus say, everything that is written by the prophets will be finished in Jerusalem. And we are close, right? Because there are years of journeying with Jesus. is coming down to this moment right here. Their years of travel, of walking, of following Jesus after leaving their families comes down to this moment right here, right? So they're probably excited until, that is, we read verse 32. Guys, there's always a catch, right? So when speaking of everything that was written, Jesus shares what he is referring to in verse 32. It says, For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. Even more so, after they've flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. That's weird. (laughs) Why why is Jesus referring to those prophecies, right? Like they're about to accomplish this great thing. In Jerusalem, why is he kind of being like a, a Debbie Downer? Like why is he talking about Those prophecies, right? We all know he's going to rise again on the third day, but why would he spend his time detailing the death and not the glory, right? You'd expect him to detail the glory, but right here he's giving details for the death. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus trying to do here? So we're going to camp out here for a minute. Let's figure that out. Out of all the prophecies that could be fulfilled, because there's a lot of them. If you look in the Old Testament, hundreds of them. Out of all the prophecies, Jesus focuses on these. Things that no one would look forward to, right? You don't you don't uh, approach Disney you're like I'm so excited for my child to throw a tantrum in line for the ride, right? Or I'm so excited, excited to spend $300 at dinner, right? No one looks forward to the negative stuff. So why is Jesus doing that here, right? Because he he let's see let's see some of the things he's referencing. He says we're going to be I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Uh, by the Roman, to the Roman government by our Jewish colleagues, our Jewish leaders, the religious leaders are going to sell me out to the Roman authorities, right? Isaiah 53 talks about this moment. It gives us this image of a sheep being led to slaughter, right? And once in custody, he'll be insulted and mocked and spat upon just like it's written in Isaiah 50. Afterwards, on the itinerary is also to get flogged and killed. Psalm 22 gives us the image of his hands and his feet being pierced. In Isaiah 53, we hear that he's pierced, crushed, punished, and wounded. Even in Zechariah 13, we get this image of the shepherd being struck and the sheep scatter, right? And then what scholars contend is Jesus is not trying to destroy all of their hope. So in an effort to not snuff out their hope, he reminds them, but don't worry, like on the third day, I will be resurrected, right? Very specific detail, three days. However, it's clear though in this moment that that's not what Jesus is trying to sell to the disciples. It's not what he's trying uh, to help them get. He's reminding them of what awaits them in Jerusalem, right? The focus of this monologue is not glory, it's shame, It's not a throne, as they were super excited about. It's a cross. And Jesus isn't presenting this as a possible outcome, right? He's not saying, there's a 60% chance that I might be crucified. Just want to give you a heads up. No, he's saying, this is on the itinerary, right? If they had those travel apps back then, you know you can get those apps. where you build your itinerary he would have pulled out his phone and showed him right there I'm going to be flogged right here I'm going to be mocked right he's saying this is the plan this isn't a a a risk that we might face this is why we are going to Jerusalem and so we might like naturally I asked the question why like why is Jesus focusing on this in this moment right? Because being in the church so many years I know the story I know he comes back to life so why is Jesus harping on his death here? And I think we gather an idea of why in the final verse of this passage and actually Luke is the only of the gospel writers to uh, to preserve what happens in the wake of this in verse 34 it says but they understood nothing about all these things in fact what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I was going to make a joke or an analogy here of like, that's like all husbands, right? (laughs) Like, they just don't get it. The wife could say like 30 times, like, it was hidden from them. They didn't get it, right? I know some of the wives are secret, like, amen, amen. It was hidden from them. They were clueless. It's like this was the first time they heard it, even though it wasn't right it's like a veil over their eyes that they cannot see what Jesus is doing and it's interesting because a lot of times Jesus speaks parabolically right but this is like as clear as day what he's saying very specific details right I can imagine the disciples would ask like is the flogging like a metaphor for cleansing like what is Jesus trying to get at here but he's being as clear as day so what's going on why don't the disciples get this right One one, uh, scholar provides some clarity saying that the prejudices of the disciples were so strong that they would not understand these things literally. They were so intense upon the prophecies which spoke of Christ's glory that they overlooked those which spoke of his suffering. This plan that Jesus is sharing isn't Within the realm. It is remotely close to what they expected to happen in Jerusalem, right? This wasn't (laughs) this wasn't within their expectation. This is so far removed from what they imagined would happen in Jerusalem. They couldn't reconcile in their minds that this man they had followed for three years who had performed healings and miracles and brought about God's kingdom and loved people so well, they could not reconcile him being on the top of the Romans' hit list, right? This, this execution most wanted list. They could not comprehend that. And so they didn't. They didn't realize that. You following me? So after three years after three years they just don't get it so to help us understand what might be happening here I wanted to tell you the story of this man named Tom Garvey Uh, Tom was a native to Philadelphia Um, he was home he was a homeless vet in the 70s and the 80s and so he was in Philly struggling through some of that and Tom got a job at the Veterans stadium y'all remember the vet right the home of the Phillies and the Eagles go birds yeah uh he was, uh, started working at the vet in concessions, okay? And so since he worked there, he had a key to some of the closets. So what Tom did is he actually moved in to one of the utility closets at the vet. He had space for a bed, he had a living space, and of course he's at the vet, so he's got like a little AstroTurf area all in this utility closet, and it was hidden by a wall of boxes. And Tom ended up living there for three years, three years, totally undetected, right? And so there's two things we can learn from Tom's story. First off, if you find a building big enough, you could live there rent free, right? Like I wouldn't recommend y'all try and find something here because I will look for you now. Uh, But if you find a building big enough, you could live there rent-free. So my wife and I are going to check out Lincoln Financial next week, the field. We'll uh, we'll keep you all posted on that. But that's the first thing we can learn. But the second thing is this, is in this moment with Tom's story, it's actually, we see this, this psychological phenomenon, which is called inattentional blindness. Inattentional blindness, which occurs when we fail to perceive something we didn't expect to see. We fail to see something that we did not expect to see, and so we got this man living in a utility closet. No one would expect that, and that lack of expectation would make him hiding in the closet much more hidden and much more elusive. Right? And we've all seen examples of this before, right? Remember a few years ago, and we have a picture for this. Do you guys remember that dress that that uh, went viral online? And I think we, yeah here it is remember that dress that went online and people were like no it's gold and white but then you had the crowd of people that said no it's black and blue right it was this huge thing because people can agree on the colors of the dress and it all depended on your perspective maybe your expectation we saw what we expected which made it increasingly difficult to see the opposite Another example is this famous artwork that we might have seen before by cartoonist William Ellie Hill in the 1800s, right? This is, uh, this is a painting of a young woman and an elderly woman, right? You think you, ex- you see what you expect to see. Y'all, you guys paid me for 20 minutes staring at this photo. <laughs> I could not figure out. I saw the young woman, but I could not see the elderly woman. I was looking at this photo for 20 minutes, and then I finally Googled it. I was like, how the heck do I see this thing, right? Sometimes we see what we expect to see. We fail to perceive that which we did not expect to see. That's an example of that. You can take that. In the same way, no one, not even the disciples, Expected what Jesus had in store. This idea of him dying was so far removed from their expectation that Jesus presented to them as clear as day, and they missed it. So they understood nothing about all of these things. But let's think about it. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's not so accidental, right? Sometimes it's not as incidental as we might think. Sometimes we like to curate Jesus, right? Like, we live in a world where you can customize everything. That's why I love Chipotle so much. You can customize it perfectly, right? We live in a world where you can customize everything. And so sometimes, we're maybe a bit more intentional about it. We customize Jesus to our liking. We customize him to our preferences, to our political party, right? And we customize Jesus into our own image. There's actually one of our founding fathers who's really guilty of this, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, what he would do is he had a Bible and he would take a blade or scissors and he would actually go through the Bible and cut out portions that he didn't like and he would remove them. Did so All throughout the New Testament, he took out a lot of the divine, uh, the divine instances of Jesus and customized him to just a, a good teacher, a good prophet. And so he took a blade and actually cut it out. You can see this Bible on display today in Washington. It's called the Jefferson Bible, Right? The disciples had their own Jefferson Bible. They had curated this idea of Jesus in their minds that once they got to Jerusalem, Jesus would overthrow Rome. Jesus would lead finally. He would take power and authority, and he would rule. And they cut out all of the prophecies of Jesus that said otherwise. So when it was presented to them that Jesus actually was going to die first, they did not understand it, right? It was foreign to them. It was unknown to them. And sometimes we do this too, right? I'm guilty of this, I'll be honest. Whether it's inattentional or blindness or my own Jefferson Bible, sometimes we tame God and have expectations for how we think God should act, how we think God should be. And then when he doesn't fit our small expectations, we get really disappointed, right? Like for some of us, we, we see God as a, as a God whose job is to make me happy, comfortable, and safe, right? A God whose job is to fix the problems of my life. If I have problems, then God must not be doing his job. A God whose job is to grant my prayer requests when I need him, but also like give me enough space to have some fun, you know what I'm saying? And it goes on, right? We customize God into our liking, so then when God doesn't meet the expectations that we set— we, we might lower our expectations and then God doesn't meet those low expectations and then we look up and we blame God. How could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? And so when he doesn't meet our expectations in our timing, in the way that we like, we bail. We throw in the towel. And we saw this happen with the disciples, right? Once the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. And so when Jesus was arrested, just about all of them bailed. Because Jesus did not meet their expectations for a king. When we customize God, we will begin to not know the things of God, right? Just like the disciples. When we customize God, when we have this picture, when we put God in a box, whenever God acts outside of the box or does something that's way better than anything that we had in mind, we then begin to not understand things that are as clear as day that God is trying to do. Even if he presents it clearly, right? Right? I agree. I happen to agree with the theologian and monk, Thomas Merton, who writes that our idea of God tells us way more about ourselves than him. Our idea of God tells us way more about ourselves than him. Y'all following me? This is making sense. This stuff's fun, right? So let's ask the question again. Jesus pulls them aside into this holy huddle, and he's telling them these things about these prophecies. The question that still remains is, why? Why is he telling them these things? And I have two reasons that I've kind of thought of that I think could explain what's happening here. First off, is he is trying to highlight the importance and the necessity of crucifixion, okay? Okay. Crucifixion is the foundation upon which resurrection is built. And so Jesus is trying to highlight the importance of the crucifixion. Because if you think about it, I'm just thinking about spitballing here. After some reading, I kind of thought about this. When does Jesus say, it is finished? It's not on Resurrection Sunday, right? Jesus, right before you think he lost, right before he dies, he says, it is finished. He actually uses the same word as accomplished that we read in verse 31. It is accomplished. It is done. And then he dies, right? When any onlooker would think, he just lost, right? And you think about it. The work that Jesus came here to do is, one, to teach people about the kingdom of heaven, but then to invite them to participate. And the, the death on the cross makes a way that we can participate, that we can have unbridled access to God, right? And so right after he dies, what happens in the temple? The curtain is torn, meaning God's people have unbridled access to God. And so he says this right before he dies. So Jesus is trying to get them to understand that this crucifixion is of utmost importance. And this is the very thing that the disciples wanted to bypass. And Jesus was not having it. That was one of the first things. The second thing that I thought of is he does this because he knows that their understanding of this will shape their participation right their understanding of jesus will shape their participation right like when that eagles started uh this season it was 3 and 6 and i was about to bail i'm a terrible fan guys uh i was about to bail they started a 3 to 6 record they're playing horribly they didn't have their act together and so i thought for a moment this is a lost cause i don't want to follow a lost cause right And so if the disciples look at Jesus and they say he's going to die, if their understanding is just on the death and that he doesn't resurrect, but if they don't trust him and what he's saying, they'll think this is a lost cause. I don't understand what God's doing. This is a lost cause. I'm going to bail, which is exactly what we saw happen. So Jesus knows that their understanding of this situation will shape their participation. If it clicks to them, If they're like i get it jesus i see what you were doing right they'll buy in but they don't get it and so they bail and so jesus is trying to stress the importance of this plan trying to remind them of what is to come so that they may follow to the very end right because the disciples wanted an earthly kingdom maybe they didn't want a heavenly one as as you know as much as we would expect they wanted all the good prophecies, but not the ones pertaining to death, right? They could do away with all those. They, they wanted to follow a king who was raised to power, not one who was raised on a cross, right? They wanted a king who fought for their authority and their rights, not a king who gave up all of his, right? They wanted the resurrected Christ, but not the crucified Christ. And so, in this moment, and I think we're guilty of this, they wanted the things of God, but maybe they didn't want God, Right? And if they don't want the crucified Christ, how are they going to respond to Jesus' invitation to crucify their sin? If they don't want the crucified Christ, how are they going to respond to Jesus' invitation to crucify their pride? Probably not very well. But you see, our expectations shape our participation. They shape and inform our participation. And I think we do we do this sometimes too, right? We expect Where we want the peace of God, the joy of God, the safety from God, right? And good things from God. But when life's difficulties come our way, and I'm talking about severe pain, when we experience severe pain, we throw our hands up in anger and confusion as if God promised us we would never experience trial, right? And we get frustrated, and so we often bail, right? Our expectations of God shape how we participate, or our understanding of God shapes how we participate. So as I wrap up, I actually wanted to share two um, images or metaphors that I think characterize really well how a lot of people treat faith, right? How they treat uh, journeying with God. And I'd say the two images um, are, we can either see this faith journey as a trip to the mall, or a trip to the hospital, okay? Now, uh, I'm gonna start with the mall. For those of you who are really young and maybe you've not been to a mall, a mall is kinda like Amazon but in person where you can go and actually pick up stuff, right? Uh, And if you ever go, their soft pretzels are on point every single time, okay? Uh, So a mall, right? What happens when you go to a mall? You have expectations to receive some goods or services, right? So you go to the mall, you like treat it like a vending machine and you are paying, you are expecting a service in the way that you like it. But what happens when you don't like it? You get mad, right? You get frustrated. This is not what I ordered. This is not what I wanted. This product doesn't work, right? We get mad. We throw our hands in the air and then we leave a review on Yelp, right? We get frustrated. Is This not what just happened with the disciples, Right? Jesus gives them something that they did not expect. They didn't want a crucified Christ. They didn't want Jesus to die, and so they got frustrated, right? They got angry. They treated God like a vending machine, right? They wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome and to take over Jerusalem. This is what they were expecting, and it was not gonna happen in the way that they thought, and so they got mad. How many of us do this, right? Right? He doesn't give us what we expect. He doesn't act in the way that I would expect God to act, right? And we get angry at God because he doesn't meet these expectations. He doesn't dispense the goodness or the happiness or the safety when I want it and how I want it. And so we stop going to the mall, right? If you have terrible service at a mall, you usually don't go back there. But what if, what if our expectations are just too small, right? What if our plans for our life are just too narrow, and God's got something much better than we could ever anticipate. Instead of thinking how we change God, maybe we need to change our expectations, right? Could it be possible that God's plans for my life is bigger than my plans, right? Could it be possible that God could do exceedingly more than we could expect? And is just asking us to trust in him, right? Maybe we have to change our own expectations for what we think God would do. So, rather than changing God, let's change our expectations. And this is why, and this this metaphor has been used before, but this is why I think we need to consider the faith journey being a trip to the hospital, a perpetual trip to the hospital. Which, let me tell you what, no one looks forward to going to a hospital usually, right? But, a hospital, when we go to the hospital, it's because we're sick, right? And the truth of the matter is that we are all terribly sick. We have a terminal illness called sin. And we experience the symptoms of this illness every day through broken relationships, through dishonesty, distrust. You know, messy, broken world where people prioritize things over people, right? We experience the symptoms of this sickness all the time. So what do you do when you're sick? You gotta go to the hospital. We gotta see the physician, right? In this case, God, being the great physician, wants to operate. He wants to cut out the mess in our lives he wants to cut out the things that give us those symptoms he wants to cut out the sin in our lives right but an operation is uncomfortable right it could be painful there's nothing joyous about getting an operation right especially if it's removing the mess from my life that is difficult right but a good physician doesn't prioritize your happiness in that moment right a good physician prioritizes your health Your life. And so we have a great physician who's trying to remove the mess from our life. Our great and trustworthy physician wields a scalpel of his grace to cut through the cancer of our sins and selfishness. And sometimes the scalpel comes in the form of pain, of loss, of community and accountability, and scripture, right? God's plan is way bigger than ours. It is way bigger than ours. It is a plan of redemption and restoration. And then we see in this story, he takes all of the cancer, all of the sin on himself and dies. That is what our great physician does for us. So, are we chasing a mall? Are we treating the faith journey like a mall? Or are we treating it like a hospital? Do we treat God like a vending machine Or are we treating him as our great physician, right? Because one of them isn't always fun or comfortable, right? Going to the hospital is not always fun or comfortable. Unfortunately, like Jesus says, it's not always going to be easy, right? And one of them will always let us down. You'll always be let down going to the mall, right? So what are our expectations, and how do they shape our participation, Because Jesus is doing an incredible work today, and he invites all of us along, right? And I hope and pray as a church, we don't miss it because we have the wrong expectations for God. I hope and pray that we can believe that God has got better things in store than we could ever imagine, right? So I'm going to close. I'm actually going to invite the band up. Now, if you're like me, <laughs> sometimes I, uh, I listen to sermons, and I listen to preachers, and then after the sermon, I'm like, I just got to do more work, right? I got to work on myself. Like, I got to get this in order. I got to get this in order. I got to start thinking in this way. I got to do A, B, and C. But I don't want us to worry about that today. But rather, I want to invite us to consider this. I think it's simple. When you're sick, what do you do? Just be admitted, right? When we're sick, when there's something in our life that needs restoration, redemption, all we have to do is be admitted, right? To be admitted is defined as entering a place, much like we do the ER, or we confess something to be true, to admit. Maybe sometimes what we need to do is confess to be true that we are sick, that we have sin, that we are broken, and we need a great physician to work on us. So every day, I think the practice is having humility enough to, to admit that we need to be admitted, that we need God to work on our lives, right? That we need redemption and restoration that can only come through a crucified and resurrected Jesus. So what we want to do today is uh, we want to give you the chance to respond if that's something you want to do. Um We want to share a little bit about what it is that God's doing and invite you, invite all of us along to be admitted together, right? And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer in a minute, but I want to remind us that we have a loving and compassionate God who wants nothing more than to free us from bondage and to free us from the disease of sin and death. A God who wants us to experience eternal communion with us. And we believe to make this possible, Christ went to the cross on our behalf to take our sickness, to take our sin upon himself and he was buried and then as he reminded us he rose again on the third day and ushered in the kingdom of heaven and in the meantime we get the chance to participate in that kingdom as we wait for God to bring it in fullness and so if you wrestle with this and if you're like I don't know how I'm participating I don't know how my expectations are bearing impact on me I just want you to invite you to pray I'm going to pray a prayer. Some people call it a prayer of confession. I'm going to call it a prayer of admission, where we are admitting that we are broken and we need the great physician to save us. And so, as I pray these words, I invite you to come up with any words that you think make that prayer would make that prayer your own. Okay, so invite you. Let's pray together as a church. Heavenly Father, we are sick. We are broken. And we experience the symptoms of sin and pride and selfishness often. We confess that we've done wrong to our neighbor, to you, and to ourselves, and we admit that now. We admit ourselves into your compassionate care, trusting that we will not always be happy nor easy. It will be good. We thank you for sending your Son to the cross to take on our sickness and our sin. We thank you that your plan is way better than ours We thank you that Jesus beat death through his resurrection. And that you offer us life and resurrection free of charge. And so God, today, we just accept this gift. We accept this treatment as uncomfortable as it may be sometimes. And we ask you to slowly begin to transform us. That you will fill us with new life. That we may experience heaven on earth knowing that one day we will be admitted into your eternal presence forever and ever. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In the name of the crucified and resurrected Jesus, amen. We're gonna close off uh, with a new song called Glory, Honor, and Power. And this is a song of celebration because here we are 2,000 years removed and we're worshiping a resurrected king who's still offering us that invitation. My prayer is that we as a church would both understand and accept that invitation. So I invite you at this time to stand and sing with us
1: it is new, we're going to start with the chorus, because uh, that way you'll hear it, and when we get to it, you can just uh, rest in the worship of, of our Lord and Savior. So it goes like this. Holy is the Lord. presence fills the temple where
2: we worship you.
1: Oh, we worship you. So now you'll be ready to sing that when we get there. And I just want to remind you, whether you're joining us online or in person, this, this is your temple. Okay? Here we go to verse one?
0: That's what we hope for, right? In this season where we are admitted to the hospital, we hope, we trust that one day we will be free of this sickness in totality. So we look forward to that glory and that honor and that power. I want to mention a lot of times when we go to the ER, right, we often don't go alone. We have community, right? So I want to invite you, if, uh, if you're new to the church you're just trying to figure this whole thing out, don't do it alone. We'd love to journey alongside of you. Even right now, if you need someone to talk to or pray with we actually have some wonderful people who are here to do that we have Kate and Mary to my right and outside in the parking lot we have Ann and then online we have some people who if you want to hit that button you can pray with them but we do believe that we should do this as a community so I invite you to think about that but I want to close off with a passage actually in John 12 verse 16 says at first his disciples did not understand all this Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. There's a moment where we might gather understanding, but even in the moment with the disciples, God and Jesus was so gracious to them and brought them back in. And so we serve a resurrected and gracious God. I hope we can remember that this week as we go about our days. We love you guys. Thanks so much for being here. We hope you guys have a great week and we'll see you soon.